0: Welcome to the Tech Legal Matters podcast by iAfrican Radio. Since 2015, we at iAfrican.com have been doing research and publishing about significant data breaches and leaks across Africa. Some we have reported on publicly, while others were too sensitive and we simply notified the relevant authorities without publicly reporting on them. During the same period, we have also researched and reported extensively on cybersecurity, privacy and data protection related matters across Africa. What we have always observed is that not many people and organizations understand the legal implications of the various technologies that they use. In this podcast, we will explore these topics and more with a specific focus on the intersection of technology and the law, how that affects you as an individual, but also from a business perspective. New episodes of the Tech Legal Matters podcast will be broadcast every Friday. The podcast will also feature analysis, insights, and commentary from attorneys who specialize in information and communications technology law. My name is Defo Mohapi and I will be your host. Now for a word from our sponsors.
1: Hello, my name is Lucien Pierce, an attorney in South Africa. What I have noticed over the years is that technology continues to challenge the legal system. What I mean is that sometimes laws battle to keep up with the speed at which technology is changing and the various new technologies that are launched. At Pukube Piers Masitella Attorneys, our team of lawyers all have a passion for information and communications technology law and are well versed in the latest technologies and the laws applicable to them in South Africa. With 15 years of experience as a law firm in South Africa, we specialise in information and communications technology, marketing and advertising and infrastructure related to these sectors. PPM Attorneys has a long list of satisfied clients and an unblemished record. So visit us at ppmattorneys.co.za and talk to us about all your legal matters related to technology.
0: On the Tech Legal Matters podcast today, I've got Lucian Piers, who's an attorney at a South African law firm called PPM Attorneys. They specialize in information and communications technology law. And today I just wanted to chat to him about the laws that, or the regulations rather, that have been implemented in South Africa. Around the COVID nineteen lockdown, Lucien, how are
1: you? I'm good, Tefo, and how are you?
0: Uh, doing well, considering the lockdown and being confined indoors.
1: Yeah, not an easy situation, but uh, I think uh, yeah, it's something that's necessary.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've seen obviously there's the issue of the of the COVID nineteen virus and its health related uh, consequences, but along with that has come what's known as a lockdown in South Africa, but it didn't just happen out of thin air. There are some sort of regulations or laws that have been put in place around that. How, how did we get a lockdown from a legal perspective? Just briefly.
1: Well, um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, if I can call it that, that's what everybody's calling it. Um, under South African law, there are various situations where a state or a government can take steps that in normal circumstances would be regarded as almost an infringement on your basic um, rights. You know, the right to freedom of uh, expression, privacy, freedom of movement, um, similar similar rights. But in these instances where something which is classified as a national disaster, something which threatens human life, uh, arises then the state is permitted under our constitution to take steps to to limit those rights. And one of the limitations as we've seen is uh, limitations on your right to freedom of movement. And there is a rational basis for this and that basis is to avoid other people being infected and potentially also losing their lives. So in this instance, these lockdown laws arise out of a piece of law called the Disaster Management Act and this allows the state to take certain steps to try and remedy and mitigate the the um, effect of this disaster.
0: That's interesting. You mentioned something interesting that uh, in terms of uh, trying to combat the spread of COVID-19, one of the things they have to do is infringe on our rights in one way or another, and one of those is obviously Freedom of movement, we have to stay indoors and get permission to move around, but from from a tech perspective and data and all that, one of the things and the first things I wanted to ask you about is the freedom of expression right. and when I looked at the the disaster management Act and listened to the media, it was being said that people will be sort of persecuted or arrested or fined. I don't know the correct word. For spreading fake news about COVID nineteen, how does that work?
1: So, we've seen in the past how how certain stories uh, and untruths, um, and put it simply, lies can can cause uh, major problems uh, and major harm to society. Uh, you know, we've seen major issues and loss of life during the time of um, the unrest in Rwanda, where stories were peddled uh, about people uh, which were completely untrue and that resulted in in, in huge, huge uh, losses of life. So we've learned from that. Uh, In this instance, what the state is trying to do is to try and avoid situations where where misinformation and lies uh, are peddled that result in people opposing or impeding the state's ability to fight and and, um, beat this this virus. So essentially what the state is saying is that please don't spread any misinformation, any untruths about COVID-19. And what it did was in the very first piece of law that was passed on the 26th of March, it had a section that basically dealt with uh, what we would call misinformation or what has subsequently been called fake news in new regulations. And that sets out what the consequences will be if you perhaps spread misinformation about COVID-19 or, for example, you lie about somebody's infection status uh, or perhaps you, you you criticize without any basis uh, any steps that the government has taken to address COVID-19.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, coming from a layperson's perspective, this sounds, it's a bit tricky and from the media and from a layperson's perspective. Firstly, the one about misinformation, how would that, I mean, be determined that somebody is intentionally, because I I can imagine intention would need to be proved, no?
1: That's right. You've hit the nail on the head. So, I I always use the example um, of my mom, who is so prolific on social media, uh, and at the start of this uh, this crisis, um, you know, I would receive uh, messages at least once a day, uh, which at that point in time, many of which were were um, completely untrue. You know, stories like if you drink lemon, it will oh, yes. it will kill the virus, or if you eat ice cream, it will exacerbate the virus. Uh, and there were, uh, there were many others, I'm sure you'll, you'll know many of them. Um, uh, so so uh, yeah, so in, in essence, somebody like her, who, who is perhaps sending it without any intention to deceive. Uh, and I think that is what is important. You must have that intention to mislead people. She could get away with it and probably wouldn't be uh, convicted uh, and sentenced to six months or a fine under this, this piece of legislation. But if you take another example in the South African media, uh, a gentleman about a month ago uh, basically said that all South Africa's COVID 19 testing kits were, were um, inadequate, correct, and, and unsafe. And he had no basis to say that. So in that instance, you know, he, he, he didn't have any basis. And uh, the court will probably be able to show, or the prosecution will probably be able to show that he, he intended to mislead people because he had absolutely no basis uh, for for saying that. So those are the distinctions. Uh, many people, uh, probably the bulk of people who, who forward um, these messages which are clearly untrue, uh, will probably get away with it. But there will be some who, who intentionally want to mislead people um, about this disease. And those are the ones that this piece of legislation is going to impact on.
0: Okay, so that clarifies it because it's very key for people to understand that they need to have intention. So my, my parents who also forward a lot of messages on WhatsApp, as long as it can't be proven or as long as they didn't have that intention to mislead and they did it in, with good intent, then if, if, it, if they were charged, they'd probably get away with it. Is that correct?
1: That, that's right. There, there is another uh, aspect that has been raised in recent weeks, and, and that is the case where uh, perhaps you, you're part of a family group and you're the administrator, uh-huh. and these messages are, are being forwarded, and, and you're aware that they are completely untrue. Uh, So, some of the debate that's been going uh, on in the past weeks is whether you as the administrator, knowing that these messages uh, are untrue and are fake, have an obligation to draw this to your, your group's attention and to stop people from doing that. So there's been some argument that in that instance where you keep quiet knowing that this is going on. Um, in that instance, there is a possibility that you could well be uh, prosecuted and potentially convicted for this. Now, this particular argument came from um, from an incident in India, I think two years ago, where okay. a WhatsApp group administrator was, uh, was convicted for uh, allowing misinformation and untruths to be uh, posted on his WhatsApp group about the Indian president, and he was sentenced to five months. So, based on that, many people have argued that it's possible here in South Africa. It Good. hasn't happened yes. yet. Um, look, I think the the, the likelihood of, of it happening is very very low. Um, I, I can't see a conviction happening unless there was was serious uh, intention, and and um, you know the the situation was really really one that uh, that involved. Um, Uh, Yeah, just just, uh, bad behaviour, if I could call it that.
0: Yeah, interesting. So the other part of the freedom of expression uh, sort of regulation around the Disaster Management Act with the COVID-19 pandemic is the one which you also mentioned about uh, not having a basis criticising or spreading false news, which could be seen as criticism also, about the government, the South African government's uh, COVID-19 health measures or any other measures. Now, I, I look at it from a media perspective, and again, from a layman's perspective, mm-hmm. and we live in a country where freedom of expression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is sort of enshrined in the constitution. And part of a democracy is that you are able to criticize the government, if I can put it that way. Now, for me, it sounds like it's a very thin line now when, when it's said that you can't without uh, a basis criticize the government's measures. How how would this one
1: work? So remember that key word is, is uh, the word with intention or the words with intention to uh-huh. deceive. So if you are perhaps a commentator, um, you know, nothing stops you from criticizing the government's approach and pointing out flaws that you believe exist in, in what the state is doing. You're not going to be um prosecuted for that because you're simply expressing your point of view. However, where your intention is to mislead um and, and and to lie and and to um speak mistruths, in that instance then you're likely to get into trouble. But to say I don't agree with the government's um testing approach because it uh, it isn't uh, moving fast enough, or the the people who are involved aren't qualified, and you're able to to substantiate that, then in that instance, absolutely nothing is going to to happen to you. We've got uh, really strong freedom of expression uh, protections in our country, which is why I say, you know, even even people who are parts of a what part of a WhatsApp group and allow these messages uh, to go through the WhatsApp group, it would take a lot for somebody to be convicted in that instance. So you're not stopped from criticizing the government and expressing your point of view as long as you've got some basis for saying it and it is not a lie that you are um, spreading.
0: Okay, that clarifies it. Now, the other one, and and also a very topical discussion around the globe, not just in South Africa, is the one around using mobile phone location data for tracing citizens with the aim of trying to see where somebody who has, or who's tested positive, rather, for COVID-19 has been, so that we can sort of trace the people they've been in contact with. Now, the the arguments from general public when I was reading and listening on social media, when this was made uh, public with the first, I think, the Minister of Digital Communications and Telecommunications, when she, Digital Technologies and Communications, when she signed it into law, it wasn't quite clear what type of data they'd be collecting and how it would be handled. So there was a bit of... I'd say outrage about the government tracking people. Is this still the case, or are people just going to be randomly tracked?
1: Well, the the my understanding of the way that this is going to be implemented is that you, in the instance where a person has been diagnosed um, with COVID or has been infected by COVID, what will then happen is that the um, Department of Health will then call on Whoever the mobile network network operator is, that that person is registered with okay. uh, to provide location data of people. Well, not just uh, the the mobile network operator that that person is um, registered with, but any other mobile network operator. Because remember, every phone emits a signal and 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 basically tells uh, the network where you are. So they will call on all the networks to provide the location data of people who were within a particular radius uh, of that infected person. And they will then um, uh, contact those people, as I understand it, uh, to, to test and check whether in fact they were they were infected. Uh, but up until that point, uh, the, the data that is held by the mobile network operators will be kept anonymous. So only in the instance where somebody is identified as having been uh, infected, will the, the National Department of Health then call on the MNOs to, to provide um, the data of other people who had cell phones and were in the vicinity of that person? So it's not like the entire country's details are are being um, collated and your, your identity is being exposed. All the information remains anonymous up until the point that um, the National Department of Health is able to uh, identify those who it can justifiably say might have uh, been infected um, by that person. Okay.
0: But then the other question is, I mean, they're collecting this data, as you say, but in terms of who has access to it? Because we, we, we can't rely on human beings to just, uh, even, even if they are government, to just use it for the purposes that we think are useful. And part of trying to control, as a, control that is to say only some people should have access to it. So, who will have access to this, to this data?
1: Um, so, so, from my understanding, the the mobile network operators will hold on to this information. Um, and it will not simply be handled over en masse. It's only when a particular person has been identified that the data of those people in the vicinity of the infected person will be handed over. Once it's handed over, the Department of Health is undertaken to keep it on a very secure database that's being administered uh, by, by a third parties. So if I'm not mistaken, it involves the CSIR, which is a, a sort of a quasi-state institution, yeah. Center for Scientific mm-hmm. Research. Uh, they will keep the, the data on a very secure database um, that that only they and certain authorized parties will be entitled uh, to to access. So it won't be anybody who who can simply go and and uh, see what is on this database. And again, remember, it it will be a very limited number of people who are actually added to the database. You know, perhaps this person <coughs> who is infected, excuse me, um, might have had ten other people around them, and only those ten would be added. And of course, once those people are tested uh, and it's found that they um, are, 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 are negative, uh, then their details will be removed from that database. Further, what will happen is that all the details on that database will be anonymized after uh, the the regulation. So essentially what the the um, operators of the database will do is they will re- remove all information that is that allows anyone to identify you. So instead of having Lucian Pierce and my cell phone number, I will be allocated some other random detail that is unconnected to me in any way. You know, I might be regarded as subject 459 with no other other connecting details. So if anyone ever does somehow get hold of that database, they will never be able to identify me. But what's important is that This anonymization has to be something that is permanent.
0: Aha, okay, that explains it. Is there anything else you want to add sort of around these regulations from a a technology point of view? I mean, what should people be careful of or what should people look out for or what should they do to stay on the good side of the law?
1: Well, I think for me you know i 'm one of these who who really guards my privacy um, as much as possible. The one assurance that we 've been given is that this database, uh, after the regulations have been um, uh, withdrawn, this database will only be kept for a certain amount of time and then either, like I said, completely anonymized or it will be destroyed so so whoever 's details end up on there. At some point, will be will be removed. Um, you know, from from just a general point of view, I don't know if there's too much that we can do to prevent ourselves from being monitored uh, as mm. far as the tracing is concerned, um, and as far as the misinformation is concerned. You know, there are logical things you can do to check whether a story is fake or not. You know, a little bit of research uh, um, on on online. Uh, will tell you whether a story is true or not. And just little hints also in the stories or, or these uh, pieces of information that you get uh, should also tell you, you know, that that uh, you need to treat them with caution. Um, so so we have to be careful about forwarding uh, fake news and articles that just come to us. Think twice before sending these on to, to your relatives.
0: Thank you very much, Lucien. And I just want to make a note for our listeners that as much as we're talking about tech legal matters, the podcast doesn't constitute legal advice. Should you require any legal advice, uh, you should contact your attorney or alternatively get in touch with PPM attorneys. Are you on Twitter,
1: Lucia? Yes, we certainly are. Uh, our Twitter handle is at PPM attorneys. Um, and yeah, you you just need to search for PPM attorneys and you'll find us, we're very busy on Twitter.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Tefu, take care.
0: YouTube. Bye. Remember to tell your friends, family, and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of the Tech Legal Matters podcast and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe
1: on the web.